Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today is my last show before I move to Hanoi, Vietnam for an entire year. So there won't be a show next week because I'll be in transit. But after that, the show uh, for an entire year will be in Vietnam, same time, because I'll be up late in Vietnam doing it, but we'll be in Vietnam. Please welcome Jennifer uh, Mrozak uh, Sukalo, author of Claim Your Swagger, which I love the title. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm delighted to be here and to join you on this call today. Well, uh, we're thrilled to have you here. So let's start off with you telling us about your professional background. So I have a bit of an eclectic background. Uh, I have spent a number of years in the health and wellness industry. I spent a number of years working with and coaching cancer survivors. I also spent over 12 to 13 years as a global leadership consultant, where I focus predominantly on the leadership space, helping designing, facilitating, and conducting and delivering workshops and programs for leaders all across the world from aspiring leaders all the way up to the C-suite of organizations. And the intent and all of my focus, regardless of where I was in my career and all my background, as far as my educational background, my undergrad and graduate degrees are all focused on behavioral change. How do I help people create lasting change in their lives. And so that's where I've really focused regardless of what avenue I've been in. And I've worked in a lot of different industries. I've worked in the financial services industries. I've worked in the construction industry. And as a global leadership consultant, I worked with pharmaceutical. I worked with high tech. I worked with oil and gas. I worked with a polymer engineering company. So the gamut I have had an amazing and delightful and humbling opportunity to be able to work with leaders from all over the world and experience a lot of different aspects of how they change and how I can help them do that. Well, but we can tell from behind you that the work is just to support your babies in the back. <laughs> uh, so tell them a little That's bit about true. your hobby. So one of, uh, I grew up, I kind of think there are two people, there's two kinds of people in the world, I mean, more than that, but when it comes to horses, you're either born loving horses, or you tolerate them, or you're afraid of them. And so I was born, I literally came out of the womb in love with horses, but the problem was, I lived uh, in a military family. My dad was in the Air Force. I was born in Okinawa, actually. And so my parents used to say, I hope your husband helps you choose a nice one because you're not getting one because we <laughs> moved every two to four years. So it wasn't until actually my husband now, he did help me get a horse and it wasn't just one. We actually have three now. 
Well, no wonder you don't have kids because horses cost maybe more than kids do. It's the cheap part, right? Is buying no, the horse, Mark, it's supporting. I've, I've been trying to tell my husband that they're cheaper than kids. There's no college. <laughs> there's no wedding. There's no car. And he's he's trying to decide whether or not he's convinced because he yeah. said, you know, but they eat while we sleep. There's something about that that's just not quite right. And but when you think of how much college costs, I think you have a point there because I spent a lot of money in college that's for true. two daughters. Yeah. So I think you, that's true. You, you, you did the smart move there and they love you unconditionally. That's true. That's true. But they do have attitudes and personalities all their own. That's what people I don't think understand. Just like with dogs or other animals, they have their own idiosyncrasies and their own personalities that make them absolutely lovable and adorable. Uh, yeah, I had an English bulldog for seven years and she passed away two years ago. I literally miss her every single day. Yes. Uh, she was the big boss. I worked for her. We used to call her the serviced dog because we were servicing her all the time. That's correct. Yeah. So nope. why did you write this book? Why? Yes. So I wanted to take all of my background and all of my expertise and everything that I had learned over the years. And I wanted to create something that was approachable and accessible to people and not just in the corporate world where organizations could pay for my expertise. I wanted to make it readily available to everyday people like you and I. And so that was that was part of the reason for writing the book. And the initial thought process or the initial concept for the book started in my work with cancer survivors. And that was a number of years ago. And I realized in my work with cancer survivors that in treatment, when they're in treatment, surviving treatment often becomes their entire focus of their life. But they get to a point post-treatment where they're fundamentally changed by the experience and they don't really know where to go from there. And they're a bit lost. And I wanted to help them see cancer as the spark that creates the rest of their life instead of something they survived. Now, as I started writing, I had people reviewing some of my early work and saying, this is bigger than cancer survivors. You're writing a survivor's book and we've all survived something, whether it's COVID or the loss of a loved one or a severe illness or injury or divorce or whatever it might be. But you are writing a survivor's book. So this became much bigger than just cancer survivors. And as I went down that train of thought, I also thought about my older sister who passed away when she was only in her 30s. And I always wondered if I had been able to help her, would she still be here? Now, I wasn't able to help my sister, but I am able to help everybody that I'm able to touch and reach with this work. And that is the hope and desire is that people take this and use it and create lives that they've dreamed of and find out how to be the best version of themselves they can possibly be. So that was kind of the reason behind all of this. And that's an ongoing, um, you're on, everybody's an ongoing uh, work in progress, right? Correct. Absolutely. We are we are about progress, not perfection. And that is coming from a recovering perfectionist, which I probably will be my whole life. It's, and it's good that you can laugh at that. Um, how did the pandemic change people's mindset? I think there was a big opportunity for the one of the biggest opportunities I think that came about from the pandemic is giving people the chance to stop and reflect. 
And I think people were so busy for so long, just going, going, going. And the pandemic stopped everybody in their tracks. And it provided a chance for people to go, wait a minute, do I even like what I'm doing anymore? Do I like where my life is right now? Am I just, am I living the life that I actually want to be living? Am I the person I want to be? And I think it provided that opportunity that maybe wouldn't have existed had it not been forced on us. How do you define swagger? I like that word, swagger. Uh, and you turned it into an acronym. So please tell us what it stands for as well. So I like to talk about not the dictionary definition of swagger, because if you actually look up the word swagger, it doesn't really have a super favorable definition in the dictionary. There's words like arrogant and things like that in there. And that's not how I define swagger. So I like to say that if you are at a restaurant and you saw somebody walk into the restaurant that just lit the room up. There was something about them. They had an energy about them that was really palpable. And if the waiter were passing by, you would say, uh, excuse me, can I have whatever they're having? Because you want whatever that is. They have this self-confidence and inner inner strength and they're comfortable in their own skin and they have self-assurance. That's kind of what I talk about, about swagger, really knowing who you are, owning who you are and being unapologetic about this is me and not everybody's going to like me. And I'm okay with that, but I'm me and I love who I am. And so the the reason I really landed on this word is I fell in love with it. But then when I created the acronym, it just made so much sense because it stands for self-worth, appreciation for your strengths and limitations, gratitude for how your life experiences have helped shape who you are, grounded in your core values, empowered to overcome your self-limiting beliefs, and then renewed through a greater focus on your passion and purpose. And when you do that work, when you figure out those things and discover what makes you unique and extraordinary, that's when you claim your swagger. And that's when you can be at your best, perform at your best, and then live your best life. Uh Nobody can love you until you love yourself, but not in a narcissistic way, right? That's right. Absolutely correct. That's right. Uh, why don't people claim their swagger as you write? What, what's stopping them? Well, I will do what I do when I facilitate many workshops as well, Mark, and I'm going to ask you a question back. So I'm going to answer your question with a question and say, why aren't most people taking care of their health? Why aren't more people in the best shape of their lives? I think um, people put it off. You know, okay. they, uh, I, I think that's a big thing. Like every, I work out six days a week and it's yeah. first thing in the morning. If I don't do it first thing, it's not getting done. So every Agreed. morning and you have to be disciplined. I, like you, yes. I've written six books and people always talk about, I'm going to write a book and they never do. And the reason they don't do it is they don't put one foot in front of the other and just start putting pen to paper. So I think that's, that's really the major thing is just taking that step forward and not just sitting on the couch and, uh, and wonder why didn't I do that? Or what if I would have tried? I love that Mark. And I think what you're noting on there are a couple things, a couple things that I heard you say. One is it takes effort and a lot of people don't want to put the effort in. And two 
it, it takes discipline sometimes to be willing to do what's required to make it happen. And that is the reason why not everybody is willing to do this. And to be honest, some of the work that I ask people to do, they may not want to do that work because there are some things I'm asking people to take a look at themselves, which is sometimes difficult. And when you're reflecting and looking at your life and the experiences and some of the other things you have gone through, that can be difficult as well. It's hard work, but it also can raise really scary emotions and feelings. And that's why I often in a couple of places in the book really encourage people to, if they are going through some of this, to don't hesitate to reach out to some, some professionals and seek some professional support while they're going through it. I always tell entrepreneurs I'm teaching for uh, Vin University in Vietnam, which I'm heading off to on Monday. And that is, uh, if you're an entrepreneur and you take the step forward and start anything, you're a winner, regardless right. of how it turns out. Yes. Because 99% of the people aren't taking that first step. That first step. step. That yeah. first step. That makes I all love the that. difference. No, and I used to, there's a quote that I, I love, and I think it was Stephen Chandler that actually said it the first time, or that's where I heard it. And he is a, he's a life coach and he's written a, a ton of books. But one of the things that he said to his clients who often say, I really want to do this, like I want to write a book or I want to do this, but I don't know how. And he said, well, then you're not ready because when you're ready, you'll just start, you'll just begin. And I think that's the key is I didn't know how to go about doing this, but I knew that and my desire to make it happen overran my fear of not knowing how. So I was able to just start. And once I started, I'm still figuring it out as I go. So you you just got to, as you said, one foot in front of the other. Yeah, that's what it uh, takes. No, no disrespect to Danny DeVito or Joe Pesci, but they aren't Denzel or Ben Affleck, yet they're hugely successful. What can we learn from them when everyone thinks you have to have major looks and talent uh, to go? And I'm not saying these guys aren't talented, but I'm sure when they woke up, they could have been highly intimidated by better looking, more athletic, you know, all that type of thing. What, what can we learn by those guys? Because they're hugely successful. Of course they are. I think what they demonstrate is that when you are authentic and genuine, when you are the best version of you, it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters what you put out into the world and what you choose to partake in. So they decided that they wanted to be successful actors. That was their choice. And they have put everything they have into it. And they're not trying to be like somebody else. And I think that is really key. It Being authentic and genuine and really having that swagger is about being the truest version of you you can be. It's not about trying to be like someone else. And that doesn't mean that you're a great person either. You know, you might have this swag. I mean, we see all kinds of people. Who in the public um, do you recognize as having that uh, swagger, regardless of what we might think of them on an individual basis? I think the people that have swagger, let's see. And men and women, because I think a lot of people think of only men as having swagger. I But there's women that definitely have swagger. 
I agree. I agree. There are some women out there that, and I'm going to go in the past a little bit because these yeah, are course. some women that I just have been some of my icons in life. And I would say that uh, if you know, and I'm, I'm going to, I mean, I didn't know this woman when she was alive, obviously, she was way before my time, but Carol Lombard, who was an actress way back yeah. when, was she had swagger. She was doing things that were she was living as a woman in a man's world and not afraid to do things that were unorthodox for women at that time. I would say that Katherine Hepburn has swagger. Oh, yeah, no has question. Tons of it. Yeah. Uh, Audrey Hepburn is another one. Grace Kelly. These were people that knew who they were, that were pioneers in some points and just unapologetically themselves. So I would say those are some people that I look to in the in my as people that I admired, but also they had swagger. They had tons of it. It doesn't mean they didn't have some insecurities because no matter oh, who you are. We all have insecurities. I, I, and I know I talk about this in the book as well, that, you know, our self-limiting beliefs, those, that voice, that track that goes in your head over and over and over, it doesn't care how successful, how wealthy, how anything you are, how beautiful you are, how handsome, it doesn't care. It's going to show up anyway. You tell us in the first chapter how you lost your swagger. How long did it take uh, to lose it and how long did it take to get it back? I think mine was a slow kind of progression of losing it until I had some people in my life that know me really well. I think I remember my one of the catalysts or turning points for me was a conversation I had with my dad where he said, you're not the same person anymore. And that was a wake up call for me. So I was probably not paying attention or as close enough attention as I should have been during that time where it was slowly waning away until I had somebody really hold the mirror up for me and say, wait a minute, who are you? You're not the same person. And that allowed me to really stop and start to reflect and start to ask myself some questions is this who I want to be? If I'm not the same person, who do I want to be? And then what do I need to do to make that happen? And so it was at that point that I started to really think about what steps do I need to take to shift myself and to shift my life? So it, and that shifting of my life, that, that took a long time because at the time I had to really think about, I was living with family, my aunts, two of my aunts took me in at different times. I didn't even have a home of my own at the time. I was working three jobs. I was commuting all over the place. It was not a fun time, but making that decision to actually get the divorce, not to stay in the, the marriage that I was in, to being willing to take risks. I remember there was a point where I was moving to San Francisco for a job that I had just gotten. and. I couldn't afford the apartment I was trying to rent unless I got the job and I hadn't gotten the job yet. And I was banking on the fact that I was going to get the job. So being willing to take some risks and go, you know what, my life, my happiness are worth taking some risks for and learning every step of the way. So that that life journey of bringing myself back and rebuilding my swagger took a long time. 
And I would say even one of my friends who was helping me as I was, she was supporting me as I was writing some of the book and read some of my work. And she said, what's been really exciting is to watch your transformation as you write the book. So I was really building and stepping into my swagger as I wrote the book. And I probably feel that right now in my life is the first time I've really stepped into it and owned it. You know, and there are people who uh, suck out the uh, personal relationships and professional relationships that suck out your swagger. And you don't even know it as it's happening. And then it's it's gone. And now you got to rebuild it. How do you keep your eye open for those negative situations Mm -hmm. and try to avoid them or you're in them and get out of them? I think it's really stopping to pay attention about how you're feeling. So are those situations that you're in, which are the ones that give you energy and which are the ones that are draining where you have to literally go and recharge your batteries afterwards because they just sucked everything out of you? What are the, who are the people that you uh, engage with that challenge you to be at your best instead of wanting you to wallow in their misery with them or stay down with them because they're in a comfort zone and they may not even be encouraging of you succeeding or changing because it's going to make them feel bad. So you have to start paying attention to who are those people that are the challengers that can help you and support you on that journey versus the naysayers and the ones that want to keep you where you are because it helps them. What steps did you take to get your swagger back? I think the biggest step that I took was making a choice, deciding that that was not who I wanted to be and that was not what I wanted my life to be like. And then It's taking the opportunity to figure out what did I want it to look like and starting to think about what steps were required then to make that happen. But the biggest thing, the absolute biggest step is being able to say, this is not it. And I'm not going to stay in this situation right now anymore. And so I'm wondering this, anyone over 40 knows what it's like to go through rough patches and mentally debilitating situations that you feel uh, you've been addressing in the book. How do you get out of the rut? I mean, it might not be a a bad relationship Mm -hmm. or bad professional uh, situation, but you're still in this rut because everybody has like these, it doesn't matter who it is, ups and downs. How do you get yourself out of the rut so you don't fall further down the, the well? The biggest thing, and I hope that's one thing that people take away from this and from the the book itself, we get to choose how we think. And the other thing is that we are the screenwriter, the director, and the lead actor in the movie of our life. That means we decide where the story goes. So if we're not happy with where the story is, then we need to figure out what we're writing for the next chapter to change it. And so I think it's about really taking the opportunity to reflect and ask yourself, if I'm not happy right now, why? And what do I do to fix it or change it? Because 
I also think about it from a business perspective. If we think about our life as a business, we are the sole shareholder, the CEO, and the chairman of the board. Yeah. We owe it to our shareholders to live our best life, to deliver our best life as a result. We owe it to the board to do our best and to perform our best. Now, if we're not happy, we need to look in the mirror and say, whose fault is that? It's ours because we're in charge of our performance. So instead of looking outward and blaming, so when you point outward and say, oh, it's because of, there are three fingers pointing back at you. And I want you to think about those three fingers as me, myself, and I, because those are the people that I need to look to, to change it, but also look to, to say, how did I get here? And what do I do differently? So I don't end up here again. Uh, Question from the audience. Could you share some business examples of people with swagger, people who have that and give back to others? Love that. People who have it and give back to others. Let me think about some of some businesses or people themselves. um, People themselves. Okay. Okay. That's a great question. I love that question. So people in the business world that give back to others as well, that have the swagger. We may not like who they are. But if you think about it, you may not always appreciate their uh, politics or their philosophy. But if you look at people like Elon Musk, he is somebody who is unapologetically himself. Like he doesn't really care if anybody likes him or everybody likes him, but he is who he is. And he does do things that take risks that are willing to push the envelope and also giving back a lot to the world in the process. So I would say that is an example um, of somebody who really does embody this notion of being unapologetically who you are, knowing where your strengths are, tapping into those, not trying to do things that you're not necessarily suited or good at, and also really capitalizing on other people, channeling other people's strengths and abilities uh, to be able to be at their best. So I think that would be an example. Someone from the audience has asked, can you repeat the acronym for SWAGGER again and explain that? Sure, absolutely. So SWAGGER stands for self-worth. So that's the SW of SWAGGER. Appreciation for your strengths and limitations gratitude for how your life experiences have helped shape who you are, grounded in your core values, empowered to overcome your self-limiting beliefs, and renewed through a greater focus on your passion and purpose. And those elements are what I constitute and what I share about when you do that work, when you develop a new relationship with your self-worth, when you identify what your talents and your strengths are and work on building those into your own superpowers, when you can look back and reflect on your life and start to really find gratitude for the good, the bad, and the ugly, all those experiences that you've had in your life help shape who you are. 
when you can really identify what your core values are and not just know what they are, but live them every day. And when you can learn how to tell your self-limiting beliefs that they're no longer welcome and focus on identifying what you're really passionate about and tapping into your purpose, your why, why you get up every day, that's when you step into your swagger and that's when you really claim it. In the book, you mentioned that your sister constantly was chasing things that she thought would bring her happiness, which for most of her life, uh, which for most of my own life, I've been doing that as well. If I could win this award, travel here and so forth, and found that my happiness lasted less than a day, really true. When an accomplishment <laughs> of the year, thought, damn, I made it, and that lasted all of a day. Right. How do we stop doing that and live in the moment and appreciate things as they happen? I think the the biggest step you can take as it relates to that piece is starting to work on finding gratitude. And gratitude is one of the most powerful tools we have in our toolbox. It is something that can in an instant transform your mindset and your attitude. And I'll give you an example. So I was in New York. I lived in Manhattan. My husband and I lived in Manhattan. So I know how loud it is. But I was back after having moved away, getting ready to deliver a workshop for a number of leaders the next morning. So I had to go to bed really early. And I was earplugs in, ready to go to bed. And it was just so loud. I could not sleep. And I was just complaining. I just found myself in this negative spiral of complaining, 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 going, oh, doesn't anybody care that I have to sleep? Don't they care that I have to get up? Of course they didn't care. They didn't even know that I was having issues. But I stopped myself in that moment and said, wait a minute, shouldn't I be grateful that I can hear? And in that one moment of asking myself that question, I was able to completely shift my mindset, my attitude, and let go so that I could actually go to sleep. And when we keep chasing all of these things that are outside of us, we haven't yet started to see what truly makes us happy and be able to be happy in every moment. When we're constantly looking forward, we're not allowing ourselves to be right here, right now, and appreciating the right here, right now. So when we start to practice gratitude and figure out, I was just in traffic on my way home yesterday, and I, again, found myself complaining, and I went, wait a minute. Look what I just was able to do. I just spent two days at the barn with my horses. Yes, I'm driving in traffic, but I have a car. I can drive. I'm capable of driving. I'm on my way home. This is amazing. Finding ways to reframe and be in the moment instead of always looking to the what next is going to make me happy is really powerful. One of the things you said uh, could guarantee success, which all depends on how you measure it. And it starts with the P to the power of three. Explain what you mean by that. So P to the power of three came up as I was writing the book. And it's 
Well, I can't guarantee other people's success because I'm not the one doing the work and I can't guarantee what kind of work they're going to put in to make themselves successful, nor do I know how they define success. But I do guarantee that you will, your success will require P to the power of three, which stands for patience, practice, and perseverance. Because we're not going to get things right the first time around. I don't know very, I know very few people, I would say, that are absolute experts at something they try for the very first time. It's going to take patience, absolutely being patient and grace. Give yourself some grace and recognize that you're not going to be good at it right away, but keep at it. Be willing to put the time in to practice what is required to make that success happen. As you mentioned earlier, Mark, it's about that being dedicated and being disciplined enough to do it. Put the time into practice, that new behavior, that new skill, whatever it is that's going to be required, and perseverance. So many people give up before they succeed because things get hard. And it's not because they don't want to win or succeed, but they're not willing to go through that effort when things get hard. And if we just keep going, if you just persevere, you will make it to the finish line. Yeah. And that's what you see with all the great entrepreneurs or anybody who's really great at anything. Uh, with right. Malcolm Gladwell say it takes 10,000 hours to be the expert. But when that's you right. watch documentaries on Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Mickey Mantle, any of these folks, they've spent tons and tons of time, way more than all the other players, to be the best that they can be with their skill set. And if everybody else put that kind of effort in, they could play, maybe they don't have necessarily that amount of talent, but they can play right. pretty close to that. Completely agree. One of the things I used to ask leaders when uh, I was working with them or in, in a workshop, I would say, think about an elite athlete. How much time do they spend practicing, rehearsing, reviewing video just to, to enhance their skill set or shave a time off a split second off their time? How much time from a percentage perspective do they spend practicing versus performing? And most people would say 80, 20, 90, 10, 95, five. And then I would ask leaders, how much time do you spend practicing your leadership or your skills versus performing? And it's the exact opposite. We're constantly performing. And yet we don't spend that time practicing to hone our skills. And it's the same with life. Our life, our job, as I said earlier, is to be the best version of ourselves, perform at our best, and live our best life. We owe it to ourselves to do that. And yet, we don't practice to be able to do that. No question about it. How do we get our kids, and this is a really important, I've got two adult kids, how do we get our kids to be more patient when they want uh, everything now, but leads to an unhealthy obsession for self-fulfillment or instant gratification? It's really illusory. I think one of the things that might be really helpful here is to start to ask the kids, your children, whatever age they might be, if they're too young, it might be a little bit difficult, but if you're having, if you can have a, a pretty thought provoking conversation with your kids, 
have them articulate what happiness looks like for them. What does it mean? What are they doing? What are they engaged with? Who are they engaging with? How are they viewing their life if they could identify what an ideal or a super happy life looked like? Getting them to think about some of these things might help them recognize that it's not about external things that are going to make us happy. It's the people we engage with, the experiences we create, and also how we give back to the world. What impact are we making on the world? That's where you bring that kind of passion and purpose into play. And that's where true happiness comes from. It doesn't come from material things. It comes from knowing what you what is happiness to you and then figuring out how to engage with those types of things, those types of activities on a regular basis. And often they don't cost anything. I think for entrepreneurs, they have to realize that only less than a tenth of a percent make, you know, um, life changing money and you have to enjoy the process of it. I mean, you need to make enough money to support yourself and have retirement. But I think that we, especially entrepreneurs through life, trying to amass that fortune that more than likely is just like trying to be an NBA player. It's going to be pretty rare that you get to that stratosphere. So you've got to enjoy the moment, enjoy what you're actually doing. If not, you're in the wrong place. That's why um, I had uh, a woman named Elizabeth Gray Vining uh, I had interviewed her years ago. Uh, she wrote a book on the emperor uh, of teaching the emperor of Japan. MacArthur picked her to teach. And I was telling her about my own aspirations. And she just said to me, are you doing this because you love doing it or you're doing it because you want to make money? Because if it's about money, forget it. Uh, you're not going to make the money. She said, it's all about at the end of the day, you enjoying what you're doing and the money will come with whatever amount that's going to be, it's going to be. And I kept that. And I heard her tell me that at 25 and I've tried to keep it in mind, not always good, but try to keep it in mind for sure. No, I completely agree with that. And I think what's so important there is loving what you do. And when I talk about passion and purpose, in the book, I talk about tapping into passion as being kind of like a lightning strike. The energy that you get from engaging in those types of activities that you're passionate about is, is like lightning. You can't contain it. You get so excited about what it is. And the purpose, purpose is why? Why do I get up every day? And the purpose is what helps us keep going through those difficult times and purpose is also about how we are in service of others. Purpose is much bigger than ourselves. It's not about how am I serving me in this? It's how I can be and do something that actually helps other people and has a positive impact on the world around us. And when we're focused on those things, to your point, Mark, the money comes, whatever amount that is, but what's most important is we're living that passion and that purpose on a daily basis. And that means we're having that positive impact on the world around us. Um, someone has written here on this, uh, one of the listeners said, 
Say more about impacting the world. I hear a lot of people looking inwards. How do we look outwards? It's a great question. And I think what's helpful is to look inward first to identify what are those things that you're really passionate about? Where do you get the energy? And how can I channel some of these passions into something that can be meaningful or useful to others? And so it's about really going through. And in the book, I have a whole series of exercises and things to help you work through those steps. This is a big deal to think about. But when I look at purpose, let me define it a little bit simpler. I like using this story. If you walked by a construction site and you saw three people performing the same role and you asked them what they were doing, and the first person you asked, they said, well, almost sarcastically, I'm laying bricks. Like, what does it look like I'm doing? And the second person had a little bit more uh, focus on an understanding of what they were doing. They said, well, I'm, I'm building a wall. But the third person understood the concept of purpose and had connected purpose and meaning to their job. They were doing the exact same role as the other people, but they said, I'm saving lives. And you went, excuse me? And he said, well, because when I'm done doing my part, this building we're creating is going to be a hospital, which will provide life-saving care and treatment to the people of this community. So I am playing a part in saving lives. Yes, I'm laying bricks, but that's my way. I can give back to the world. I can make an impact in the world and on the world every single day when I engage with another human being. Every interaction we have with another human being is an opportunity to create a positive impact in the world. It doesn't have to be these big, gigantic gestures, a smile, a nice comment, acts of kindness. There are so many ways that we can give back to the world and impact it in a positive way. So I hope that was helpful and answered her I, I question. Th I think so. I, I live in a three-tower condo. And every time I walk by the maintenance people, I thank them for their good work. And I tell them why it's important exactly. what they do. And uh, one of them said, nobody ever says that to us. And I said, but if you didn't do your job, the valuation, the building, the reason I live here, all these things, uh, it would suck all the enjoyment out of it. I it, said, but it, you, yes. you doing your job and the level that you do it at makes all the difference in the world. We have to remember that, that when we see people doing jobs that most people think are beneath them, those jobs really matter. I remember we were thanking trash people, right, for picking up the trash. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and I think we forget those things. We forget that we all have a part to play in making things happen and making the world go round. You write about daily re, uh, reinforcement affirmations. Mm -hmm. What is that and why is that important? So daily reinforcements are activities that I have in the book that encourage people to practice swagger daily because swagger is not just a word. It's a lifestyle and it's something that has to be worked on and practiced daily. One of the activities revolves around affirmations, which are positive statements that we say to ourselves, sometimes silently, sometimes out loud. 
I sometimes do both, where we can reinforce certain, whether it's behaviors or certain thoughts or certain beliefs that we really want to encourage for ourselves. The, the important part about saying an affirmation, so let's say uh, an affirmation could be, uh, I'm living, I'm having a positive impact on the world today. That might be one of your affirmations uh, that you say to yourself. And I'm living my passion and purpose today. Uh, that might be another affirmation statement that you might say to yourself. You have to say them as if they're already happening. And the other thing is you have to say them with belief and conviction. You can't be, well, am I living? My it's not a question. It's a statement. And when you tell your brain that and believe that it's already happening, what you're sharing with your brain is that you're encouraging it to happen because your brain can't tell the difference between a memory in the past and a a statement or a vision of the future. It can't tell the difference. It processes that information the same way. So when we tell ourselves that it's already happening, we're more likely to create it and make it happen. And that's what affirmations help us do. And you own three Arabian horses, uh, which we talked about a little bit in the beginning, which was uh, one of your personal dreams. Why horses and what personal pleasure do you get from owning horses? And you also call them your spiritual partners. Why? So horses are sentient beings, and I don't think people understand that part. They are, uh, especially I find Arabians as a breed, they are incredibly intelligent, incredibly affectionate, and just the best teachers you could ever have. So they constantly teach me things. Every time I engage with them, I am learning more, not only about myself, I'm learning about how to be a confident and effective leader because when you're riding or when you're engaging with them, you have to be the leader. It's also about partnership because you work together hand in hand with them. I can't force them to do something. I ask a question and they have to want to respond in a positive way. And so it is really important that you develop a conversation and a relationship and a partnership. And I do believe just like with other animals, I'm sure other people might feel this way about their dogs. We build very strong bonds with these animals that are, they transcend just the physical connection you have with them. And that's why I say they are spiritual partners with me. I have connected with them on a more spiritual level. They are my heart animals as well. They just, they are a part of me. I feel, and many people may not understand this because I chose not to have two-legged kids. I have four-legged kids, but they are my children. And so I think of them very much like people think of their own kids. I think people who do have, especially dogs and horses, uh, my, my, I have a portrait of my um, two daughters and they're standing behind my dog. So she's in the forefront and they're <laughs> behind her. And they were like, yeah, of course, that's the pecking order. There's Roxy and then there just happens to be us. That's and right. I, and she, when she was alive, she treated them like they were the second class citizens. Of course. She expected them to cater to her every whim. And I, I, I've got such a kick out of it. 
Many of the principles, this is asked by someone uh, in the audience, many of the principles you are espousing seem to be derived from the Bible. Am I correct? Well, I have a very strong faith. That is part of my upbringing. And so because, and you'll notice that in the book, that uh, our upbringing is a big part and shapes who we are. And it's about really understanding and appreciating that and reflecting on the, the part it plays in who we are today. So there's definitely aspects of, of that in here, partly because of how I was raised and how I was brought up. Now, at the same time, what I've also really worked hard to do in the book is to not have a particular perspective that I am espousing, but to provide people with the guidance that they can go through the work and figure out what it means for them based on their life, their experiences, and where they are and who they are. So I'm not really promoting any one particular belief or belief system. I'm actually building on what my foundations were, but creating and putting it in a way that's very accessible to whomever is going to read it. There was mention of Don Clifton, father of strength psychology, finding the best performers play to their strengths and aware of their limitations. How do you get people to realize their limitations and play to their strengths? And what's a strength-based development? So Gallup and Clifton Strengths, people may have heard of both of these, but what they have done is focused their energy on helping people identify what you are naturally good at. And they found in their research over decades with millions of people that the best performers in any role, it doesn't matter who they are or what they do, that when they focus on what they're good at and harnessing those and channeling those strengths, that they perform better than people that are trying to shore up their weaknesses. Now, the challenge with this comes with it is a slightly different way to think about things than the way we've been trained over the years. Because if you got a report card right now, Mark, and it had all A's and one F on the report card, what would you naturally be drawn to? Oh, the F. Right, right. So that's right where our eyes go, go, oh my gosh, what happened here? But what this school of thought is saying is actually what we should do is the opposite. We should look at the A's and say, okay, ask the same question, what happened here? What was I doing here to get these A's that could help me actually fix or change or alter this area that I didn't do so well in? How can I channel those and use it here? You mentioned the power of the to-do list, and I'm a, I'm a big list maker. <laughs> uh, what's the power of the to-do list, and why do you have one, and, and what's the value? And can't having the list put additional stress on someone? Because sometimes I had too many things in my list, and I was getting stressed out by trying to get all those things done. Well, you mentioned a couple things, Mark, and I think for me, the list is helpful because I can look at it. I write down all the things that have to be done. I can prioritize and determine where I'm going to focus my energy and attention so I can be much more efficient and productive. 
Additionally, the list for me allows my brain to relax because I'm not trying to hold on to in my head everything that I have to do. It's written down. I can let it go. I know that it's there. I'm not going to forget it. The challenge comes when you sound very much like my husband who writes a to-do list for a weekend that most people wouldn't get done in a month. And then he gets upset because he didn't get it done in the weekend. So what's important is how we view the list. It's a place for me to hold all of the things that I have to get done. It's not necessarily something that I'm going to all get done in one day. So it's having the right relationship with the list that I think matters. Instead of looking at it saying, these are all the things that I have to get done today. No, I will put timelines or deadlines for myself of when I'm going to be completing those things, but it's a place to capture everything that has to get done so I can let it go from my own head. Um, Many leaders have employees and children that don't think they have a unique superpower. How do you help them find those powers and, and or develop them? And where does the five clues identified by Gallup that help one recognize and tap into their strengths? So there's clues. To, so first of all, I'll share with everybody on the, uh, who's listening right now. You all have natural talents that you were born with. I like to call those your greatest hits because you, every one of us are born with things that we are naturally, that we naturally have an aptitude for, that we're naturally good at. Now, a strength comes from over time, we have developed that talent by practicing it, by increasing our knowledge base, and by utilizing it on a regular basis until it now becomes a strength of ours that we can leverage and tap into on a regular basis. The the clues to your strengths come in things like desire. If you pay attention to the things you love doing, you absolutely love, can't wait to get back to it again. So this is how parents could help their kids by asking them, what are those activities that you love doing that you just can't wait to do again? Uh, Flow is another one. It's where time just flies and you somehow already know how to, what the steps are to do a particular activity without really even being told what they are. You'll also find things like glimpses of excellence, which is this where you have these moments of brilliance and you go, how the heck did I do that? Wow, look what happened there. Amazing. Uh, And there's also this sense of satisfaction, this, this true sense of accomplishment when you've done something. And when you can tap into some of these clues, or identify what activities those things show up for you, where do they show up? Those are helping you figure out what your talents and your strengths are. And the other thing is, I mean, I encourage people to go and go to Gallup and take the take the assessment. They have honed this for years. And it is amazing, truly amazing. I am not associated or affiliated with Gallup. I am a certified strengths coach. I am certified by Gallup, but I'm not promoting their work because I'm trying to help them. I actually think it's really useful and helpful for people. Uh, So I encourage, and they have a children's version. So they have a younger version for kids. So if parents want to help their kids learn at a really young age, what they're naturally good at so they can work on developing that over time. It's a great place to go and check it out. 
Uh, one of the most debilitating things is get, test anxiety. Uh, even when people know the answer, they have doubts and flub the answers. How do you overcome that? You write about that in the book. Well, I had it when I was really young. I was getting ready to take a timed multiplication test and I was prepared and I was ready and I got to the test and I couldn't even write my name on the paper. I completely froze. And from that point forward, I had severe test anxiety. I would literally get physically ill the night before a test. And so I developed coping mechanisms for myself. Now, these worked for me. They may not work for everybody else. But one of the things that helped me get through it was this just memorizing everything. I could literally tell you what page of the resource book it was on and what part of the page it was on because I would just memorize things. But the other aspect of that is to help me memorize, I created acronyms and sentences and things that would help me remember lists or pieces of information so that I create, I utilized different techniques that supported me and gave me a productive path forward. So I didn't get to that freezing point where I just froze on the test. And I was a, I was a great student and these have helped me even later in life as well, because of how I trained my brain to remember information. So there are techniques you can employ and there are things you can do to get over that test anxiety because I'm living proof. It's funny, uh, Ben Simmons who used to play for the Sixers was a terrible foul shooter. He shot 27% one year in the playoffs. And I had uh, a lunch with a guy who was an NBA foul, um, uh, shooting coach. And he said, I could teach your grandmother how to shoot 70% from the line. He said, oh, it's a matter of shooting 200 shots a day for 90 days, and your body automatically does it, which goes to the fact of what you just said. Yeah. He goes, the reason he's not shooting 70% is he's not practicing at all his right. foul shooting and letting right. his teammates down by not being the best he can be. It's not a question of talent, especially at his level. He should be able to do that. But he said, when you see somebody hitting foul shot after foul shot with people screaming and everything else, it's because their body. Muscle memory. Has, yeah. They're just doing it. I mean, anything could be happening. So I find that to be really interesting. You write about corporate core values, which I think most of what is written is BS, that marketing and HR make up the companies never live by. How do you create authentic core values for your organization and yourself? So what for personal, I there's an activity in the book that I encourage you to go through what's called a force sort. The challenge with core values is when we first look at all these values, we say, oh, well, they're all important. Well, they are all important, but they can't all be the most important things for you. So going through and identifying for you where you are in your life right now, what are those things that are most important for you? And forcing yourself to select your top five. So that's a great way to, to figure out what your personal values are. And you could do a similar activity, to be honest, with a corporation where you get people in the room and you start to identify what is it that we as a company truly value? What is most important for us? as an organization, as a culture, as a company and, and the impact we, we bring to the world, whatever it is, and start to foresort what are our values until they come down to their top three to five, 
that they truly want to embody and live, not just words to your point, Mark, not just words that HR came up with, but the organization itself has identified what they are. And I think far too few organizations go through that type of activity. They allow the HR or the PR team to, to come up with the, the good words that make sense, but then they're, they're hollow. They don't mean anything because the organization doesn't live them necessarily. They're just words. But if the organization spent time really identifying what mattered most to them, then those core values would have a lot more meaning for everybody in the organization. Jennifer, I bet you're a fabulous coach. I've so enjoyed the hour with you, and I feel energized uh, from the experience. So I want to thank you for uh, uh, participating today and sharing with us your thoughts on your book. And I'm hopeful that you're going to write another one. We'll have you back again. Well, there's two more coming. The second one's going to be developing your swagger and the third one's going to be living with swagger. So it's going to be develop your swagger, live with swagger. Those two will be coming out again. Uh, well, once we get this one out into the world and going. So look for those in the future. Well, we're booking for June of next year. So if you know your book's going to be coming out, uh, you have to let us know so we can put you on, uh, in the rotation here. I love that. Thank you so much. I look forward to it, Mark, and wish you all the best in Vietnam. That's such an exciting adventure. I'm so I'm so excited for you. Well, thank you so much. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. I'll see you two Fridays from now. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.